Welcome, everybody. It is my honor and distinct pleasure to host my instructor, Mr. Roy Harris, to the podcast. Thanks for joining me, Mr. Harris. Thank you for having me. God, yeah, it, it's a pleasure and um, highly requested guest. Obviously, I've, I, I pulled some some people and they were like, you got to get Mr. Harris on. You got to get Mr. Harris on. <laughs> and so everyone always wants to know what's going in, on uh, inside your mind and your latest projects, uh, okay. what you're up to. Um, so, but for those that, that may not be as familiar with your uh, training history and background, could you go into that uh, to start off? Yeah, sure. I was uh, born and raised in uh, Midwest, kind of grew up, uh, how should I say, the, the raisin and the bowl of rice back in the 1960s. And as a result, I kind of got beat up. I got pushed around. I got spit on. I got threw down a hole once. It was kind of crazy. And so I asked mom and dad, hey, I wanted to learn self-defense. And in the city where I grew up, there was only one martial arts place. It was a karate studio. Long story short, parents rejected that because they said, ah, martial arts, that's just another form of violence. And so it wasn't until I actually uh, got out from underneath mom and dad on my own <clears throat> So I started training martial arts in uh, the summer of 1981. My first style was Wing Chun Kung Fu. Um, and I actually started in the basement of a Chinese restaurant um, in my downtown area. And so that began my journey. And uh, But it wasn't quite what I was looking for because the instructor was really into forms. I was looking more for self-defense. So I ended up moving to the Minneapolis-St. Paul area and found a guy there who taught uh, Jeet Kune Do and Filipino Kali and a bunch of other stuff. And so I trained with him until I moved to California in February of 86. So um, once I moved out here to California, man, the world of martial arts kind of opened up to me. And to make a long story short, since that time, I have been involved in... 27 different styles with 51 different instructors, and it's been quite a journey. It's been very interesting for me to see how different styles and different instructors address some of the same uh, common things that people are, you know, focused on, like how do you neutralize a punch? How do you deal with a headlock? How do you deal with somebody who's trying to tackle you? And so, yeah. 1981, 27 different styles, 51 different instructors. It's been a heck of a ride. An amazing journey. And um, do you feel that you uh, were lucky to be introduced to JKD and that kind of JKD mentality early on? Uh, how has is, how is that JKD mindset affected how you view other martial arts and, and BJJ? Yeah, the my first uh, JKD instructor was a gentleman by the name of Rick Fay, Sifu Rick Fay, uh, of the Minnesota Collie Group, and uh, feel very fortunate to have trained under him. He's a marvelous human being, a phenomenal practitioner of Jeet Kune Do and Collie and Thai boxing and several other arts, and uh, he really opened my mind to the idea that. No one style has all the answers. No one instructor possesses all knowledge. And so it's important to, uh, as you say, learn to discover yourself, learn to discover your own path. So he was very encouraging to 
Take a look at Thai boxing. Take a look at Indonesian sila. Take a look at Russian sambo. Take a look at these different styles. And so I feel very fortunate that I found somebody that uh, wasn't really locked into one particular way. But as Bruce Lee said, he kind of used no way as way. And uh, he was very uh, warm and inviting. And uh, he really set in motion for me, something that has been my journey since 1981, and that is this, pursue efficiency. Pursue efficiency. Because in the world of martial arts, regardless of style, you know, size and strength are factors. They're not just nothing, they're actually factors. Um, and so to be effective with any form of fighting, all some people need is a little bit of knowledge and a lot of athleticism, and they can be effective. We know this because when we were uh, blue belts and even purple belts, young purple belts, we had the wrestler types come to our class, and they were white belts, but we struggled with them. And so uh, Sifu Rick really opened my eye, eyes to this idea that there was a whole lot within the realm of martial arts training and there was a lot to experience and it was a very important to uh, find your own path, find your own journey. Uh, as you study with these different instructors, as you study with uh, the different styles, and uh, the way JKD really affected me as far as jiu-jitsu training is concerned is, number one, it helped me to think more principally and conceptually in that I wasn't locked into the idea of technique, technique. Technique was just something that you used to solve a particular problem, but uh, there were several other elements that made a person effective or efficient or allowed them to be playful when they sparred or if they ever were involved in uh, some kind of uh, real life uh, event. And so before I got involved in jiu-jitsu, I was already, thanks to Sifu Rick, uh, Guru Dan Inosanto, and Paul Vunak, uh, and also Sifu Larry Hartzell, my primary JKD instructors. By the time I got involved in jiu-jitsu, I was thinking about concepts and principles. Mm, mm. And that those concepts and principles that you brought to BJJ really made a lot of sense for me and kind of helping categorize things where it was just so many disparate techniques that you kind of had to piecemeal together yes. uh, on your own. And, and it seems like that was... Now it's... It's more a little more systematized, but yes, but that was definitely part of of your influence. Uh, Rick Fay had kind of a curiosity when it came to uh, different martial arts, and that's something that I think that you really instilled in us as your instructors to remain curious. I remember you mentioning that a few years ago, and it's something that has definitely uh, resonated with me uh, over the years. Like that kind of childlike curiosity to why is that you know why does that work instead of getting locked into something mm -hmm. being more observational and kind of neutral and um, inquisitive about something I, I think that's that's really a huge mental asset to to bring into your martial arts training I definitely think so you know uh, when I Several years ago, I had the uh, fortune to actually be invited by uh, Guru Dan Inosanto to come uh, train him privately and spend some time with him. And, you know, after training, you always sit around and stand around and talk. And it was interesting for me to hear 
the stories about Bruce Lee and hear how Bruce Lee thought and how he, Bruce Lee, had this idea, you know, when you look at Jeet Kune Do and you see using no way as way, it's like, well, what does that mean? Jeet Kune Do, what does that mean? You know, it's the, the way of the intercepting fist in our hand. And so it was this idea of let's take a problem and let's come up with a bunch of different solutions a Korean solution, a Chinese solution, a Japanese solution, a French solution, a Russian solution, a Brazilian solution, and let's find a path that works really well for me. My path may not be the same path as you because I'm of a different size than you, I'm of a different personality than you, uh, I have surgeries that you don't have, you have injuries or uh, assets that I don't have, and so having the first instructor really open up the world to me, that was, that was monumental, and that, that uh, his teachings are still with me today. They still guide me. Mm, that's fantastic to hear. Um, so I met you initially, I believe, at the UCSD BJJ rec class. Yes. I, I think I signed up for that initially, and then I went over to your uh, academy, I think it was on Gramercy, Yes. At, at that time, and then and then you moved to the other academy where I did the majority of my training with you in San Diego, mm -hmm. and so you've had these different iterations of academies over the years. Uh, can you just talk about the evolution of your academies and and how you've kind of shifted your mindset on you know the benefits of having an academy and maybe the uh, benefit of not having an academy for a while just mm -hmm. just how your thoughts have shifted over the years on having an academy okay sure my first academy was called pfs san diego that was the one on uh, gramercy and uh, i started that back in august of 1994 and the emphasis there was realism and fighting and while i love that idea and many of my clients initially told me that they loved the idea. When it came to the actual training, they didn't love the idea because there was a little bit too much sweat involved, a little too much blood involved, and a little too much injuries here and there involved. And, uh, and so that first academy was really a trial run for me because I knew a lot martial arts wise my ability to teach and present as an instructor was honestly very low. I didn't know what I didn't know, but at the very least, I cared for my students and I wanted the best for them and I wanted them to have the skill sets that I possessed. So that first academy with the major emphasis on realism, I mean, we did uh, headbutts, knees, elbows, thumb the eye, grab the junk, bite, slap, we did it all. As a matter of fact, uh, I had some jiu-jitsu students who were kind of locked into a particular way of thinking, and I said, well, let me allow experience to kind of give you a little experience and teach you something. So we would, at the end of class, we would do mat time, our sparring, on the asphalt. Mm. And sometimes we would do our mat time, our sparring, in the back alley where there were shards of metal and shards of glass and small rocks mm. and a bit of sand and dirt. And so once they got out there and they started to 
do their jiu-jitsu on the ground and these small little shards of glass or metal or whatever would impale themselves on the shirt, stick until the person was on top of you, and then it would fall off in your nose, in your mouth, in your ear, or sometimes even in your eye. And everybody reacted the same. Oh, stop, 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 stop. And so by having that experience of going from nice, soft, comfortable mats to asphalt, that was an eye-opening experience. And then taking it out back to where now there's other elements that you can't control that you know, fall in orifices that uh, they kind of interrupt your thought process. That was eye-opening for a lot of clients. And while that was good... Um, I discovered as an instructor and also as a business person that those kind of people that are rep- that really want that level of realism are very small. And so the first academy was really a learning experience for me to grow and develop as an instructor and as a, a practitioner. And then came the second academy, uh, the one that you spent the majority of your time at in uh, Miramar. And that one, I toned down the realism and changed the emphasis to, now there's more of a focus on you finding and discovering what path do you want to go down. We had the jiu-jitsu classes, we had the JKD classes, we had the Kali classes, we had the uh, MMA classes, we had the kettlebell classes, um, we had the uh, functional fitness classes. So there was a whole mix of a lot of different stuff that people could try and say, oh, hey, I really like this, or no, I don't really like that. And then people tended to stay within whatever they liked. You know, the majority of my jiu-jitsu people stayed only with JKD. I'm sorry, only with jiu-jitsu. Same thing with the JKD. But there were a handful of people, uh, the Dales, the Al's, the Tim's, these were people who cross-trained and really enjoyed uh, kind of mixing and matching a little bit of the blade work with a little bit of the jiu-jitsu with a little bit of the JKD and the eye poke and the groin kicks. And so that was uh, that second academy. Uh, I was a much better instructor, not like I am now, but still it was much, much better than the first uh, academy. And I grew and my students grew and uh, it was really a fun place. Mm. And then now this third academy, this academy is uh, unique in that I've tried to make it different from every other martial arts academy that I have seen or been a part of or uh, visited. Um, I have three major emphasis. Number one, ministry. I help people in life. I help people move. I give people finances. I, you know, the greatest gift that God has given me is bottomless ears. So I listen. (laughs) When people want to talk, I listen. How long do I listen? Eh, Hours. And I don't say a word for those hours because many people just want and need someone to be able to get stuff off of their chest and be able to express. So ministry, and then there's the religious aspect with Christ. So that's number one. Number two is I focus on helping people to get usable, repeatable, measurable skill sets. Uh, very early on in my journey with jujitsu, thanks to my JKD background, the emphasis was less on 
more and more technique, but more on how do I take these four, five, eight, ten, twelve techniques that I know and turn them into skill sets in a matter of weeks or months. And so I, uh, when I first opened it up the academy, I accepted only 12 students. I wanted my 12 disciples. I wanted them to, uh, to have skill sets in very specific areas that I knew would make a huge impact on their, uh, their sparring abilities. For example, in the uh, jiu-jitsu class in the first 10 months, we spent 10 months every week four days a week, focused on that small little sliver of time from the guard pass to the side mount. Mm. In other words, they're not in your guard and they're not side mounted. It's that little no man's land area. How to control, dominate, and manipulate that area so that you don't get held down from the side mount. Now, some might say 10 months, that's a, lot, that's a long time. It's a long time because there's a lot of information in there. And technique-wise, we only went over seven, eight techniques. So there weren't really a whole lot of techniques. It was more about practice methods. In the Harris Jiu-Jitsu that I present now, there are 12 methods of practice. And then there are training methods. There's 300-plus training methods. So I showed them a handful of practice methods, a handful of training methods, and then we just drilled the snot out of this one little sliver of time. And I was waiting to hear the comments because the majority of these students train at other academies here in uh, Southern California, and uh, it was fun to hear the comments. The comments were the comments that I heard over the years. What kind of comments? Comments like this, like, oh, they would walk up and they would squeeze the guy's bicep and say, hey, are you working out? You feel like you're, you're much stronger. <laughs> and the student would say, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I just started working out. And so by having them hyper-focused on one really important area of jiu-jitsu and helping them to develop a skill, a measurable skill, that's another thing. Uh, how do you measure your progress without using the injurious measuring tool called the TAP? Mm. How do you measure progress? Well, I've taught my students how to measure their progress. And so part one, ministry. Part two, I want to help people get skill sets, these measurable skill sets over a shorter period of time. And then finally, number three, I am in uh, quasi-retirement mode in that I'm preparing for retirement in that I have turned this academy into a filming studio where it just takes me two to three minutes to set up, and bam, I've got five cameras, five different angles. I've got audio, I've got everything all set up. So I got the ministry going on, I got the skill set development going on, and then I've got whenever I decide to hang up the gloves or hang up the gi or hang up the blade, I will have several hundred instructionals on several hard drives because that's what I've been doing since I got here. I've been filming every Wednesday and Friday mm. and uh, I already have now filmed eight or nine instructionals. I haven't edited them yet, but they're sitting on a hard drive just waiting for me to edit them and one day they'll come out. So anyways, that has been my journey with the, uh, with the academies and 
I'm enjoying the journey. Uh, it's, it sounds fantastic. Uh, the <clears throat> being able to kind of reinvent your own space, space you hold for people. Yes. Uh, that people value that they look forward to it. They, I mean, this kind of a sanctuary of sorts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, I, I definitely think you're doing great work. And the fact that you have it all, I'm not surprised. Like the audiovisual stuff all dialed in. Um, yeah, that's 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 good. I would expect no less. Your your setup looks great, by the way. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, so. Uh, then one of my black belts, I, I, I put out to my affiliates, hey, do you, I'm going to interview Mr. Harris. Do you have any questions? Mm -hmm. And one of my guys, Alan Shade, great martial artist, he's, he had a couple of questions. Um, he's feeling – his first question is, what are your thoughts on always having your, uh, a target on your back as a black belt? Mm -hmm. um, what are your thoughts? Yes. Uh, so number one, I think – uh, it's very important. My, probably one of the most important lessons I've ever learned in life is the lesson of acceptance. I'm not an individual who believes in tolerance because tolerance is kind of has a negative component to it. I believe more in acceptance. You accept people for who they are. If this guy's a jerk, okay, he's a jerk. It's not my goal or intent to change him. I accept him for who he is. However, as a jerk, I kind of keep a certain amount of distance. If this person that presents himself to me is a, a great guy or a great gal, well, they'll come into the fold. They'll come in a little bit closer. So I believe in acceptance. So as a black belt with a target, with the bullseye on your head, it's important that, Alan, that you accept the fact that there are negative, pessimistic, cynical trolls out there whose whole purpose in life is to bring somebody down. Mm. It would be nice if everybody was nice and considerate and respectful, but you just got to accept the fact that some people are different. And that's the nice mm. word. Some people <laughs> are different. And if they don't like you, if they want to put their words on you, they want to come and physically challenge you, they want to do or say whatever they're going to do, you have to accept that there's going to be a very small percentage of people that are actually going to do that. And as long as you are secure in who you are and secure in the product and the service that you provide to your community, it's all good. You know, mm -hmm. over the years, I've had a lot of haters and a lot of trolls and a lot of drama in my life from people saying all kinds of things about me. Back in the day, I'll be honest, I didn't handle it very well because I didn't have any knowledge or experience. Uh, I didn't have any training. And so I didn't handle it very well. Now that I have made a few hundred, a few thousand mistakes, I have found myself admiring people that uh, you hear the name elder statesmen, people who are just so smooth and savvy with their words and nothing seems to get them uh, frustrated or to push them over the edge. That's a goal to seek, is to try and 
tone down our ego, tone down our attitude, and try and become like that elder statesman to if somebody has something to say, we listen, and then we put our hand on the shoulder and say, I'm sorry you feel that way. That was never my intention. I apologize. So the uh, antidote to that is humility. Mm. Be humble and let people say what they want to say. Let people do what they want to do and go about your life. You know who you are. You know the product and service you provide. You got clients who love you and love what you do. Focus your mind and effort and your attention on them and just uh, let go of uh, the trolls. Mm. So, yeah, that is great advice for everyone who's ever been online. Definitely. Yes. <laughs> yes. And then, and then a f another follow-up from Alan. Um, how do you feel? He's feeling a little bit of wear and tear in his body, mm -hmm. uh, as, as we all are. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you like to select your training partners? And then how has that changed over the years? So in the beginning, um, when I first opened up my academy in 94, I was a purple belt. And uh, because I was traveling about two and a half, two hours and 40 minutes one way to go train with my instructors up in Los Angeles to develop the skills that I wanted, I couldn't travel back and forth so much. So what I did was I put out a bunch of flyers to uh, teach people jujitsu free of charge, but also to get a bunch of bodies that I could turn into training partners that will help me in different areas. For example, I had some training partners that were roughly about your size and build. They were tall and kind of lanky. These were the people that I taught everything I knew about, excuse me, about triangle choke and arm lock because they have the body type to do that. Then what I did was I let them put me in a triangle or, or an arm lock and I would have to escape. They were white belts. I was purple belts. In the beginning, it was easy. As they went along, it got more difficult and I actually started to tap to some of the people because they got so good. I took guys my size and bigger and made them my scarf hold and side mount 100 kilo escaping partners. So this was how I did it in the beginning. I picked a bunch of different people with a bunch of different body types to help me. Uh, however, back then I was in my 30s and things are different in your 30s. This year I turned 60. I made my 60th revolution around the sun. And I can tell you that 60 is different than 50, very different from 40 and no comparison to 30. And I don't even remember 20. <laughs> and so uh, as I've gotten older, you know, there's been more wear and tear on the body and the injuries instead of, you know, somebody takes you in an arm, hard arm lock and your arm goes pop, pop, pop. And you scream, and then you mm. shake your arm out, and in your 30s, ah, mm. I'm sore for eh, 10, 15, 20 seconds, I'm good to go. In your 40s, no, that's a couple days. Mm. In your 50s, that's a couple weeks to a month. In, in your 60s now, no, we're talking about half a year. And so now, the emphasis is less on trying to be effective but moving from effectiveness to efficiency to playfulness. And so because my jiu-jitsu has changed tremendously, I'm not, when I spar with people, 
I'm not actually pursuing technique. I'm playing a game of positioning. It's a subtle game of inches and centimeters. And uh, when I do this, and uh, many years ago, I hurt my neck really bad. And I, as a result, I now have arthritis at C5, C6, C7. Um, so my neck gives me a lot of problems. I learned how to uh, protect my neck. And so back in the day, I used to roll with anybody, but I still protected my neck. Now, when I'm looking for training partners, the number one thing I look for, attitude and demeanor. I don't care your body type. I don't care your belt level. I don't care your experience. I can help you get a skill set quickly in one area that will help me. You'll learn jiu-jitsu and you'll help me with guard passing or mount escapes or mount control or whatever it is. And so now when it comes to choosing a partner, it's about attitude and demeanor. If you carry yourself as a person of humility and consideration, I want to train with you. Hmm. If you mm. got uh, a little bit of, I don't want to train with you because mm -hmm. I know that's going to demonstrate itself on the mat and probably on my neck, on my shoulder, and on my elbow. So yeah, attitude, demeanor is uh, what I look for. Awesome. Awesome answer. Um, yeah. Yeah, attitude. It takes you so far and it, it really distinguishes you um, to the group. Um, okay, so I have another one from uh, Joshua Matanane, another one of my affiliates. Mm -hmm. If you give your younger self one piece of advice, martially speaking, what would that be? Uh, place an emphasis. I would have to teach my younger self because mm -hmm. I don't see my instructors teaching this to me. Uh, sure. Number one, have fun. This is a martial arts. In America, uh, the majority of us who train martial arts are hobbyists. What's a hobbyist? Having taught 754 seminars in 24 countries, I've talked to a bunch of people and I ask them, you know, so how often do you train? What do you train? On average, hobbyists train three, four, five, six hours a week, maybe seven or eight. The people who have more of the lifestyle of jiu-jitsu are people who are doing 15, 20, 20 plus, maybe even 30 plus hours a week. That's a lifestyle. That's a job. Hmm. And so as a hobbyist, hobbies, number one, are supposed to be fun. Don't take it too seriously. Uh, in the beginning, I took it too seriously because what was emphasized to me, the tap. You have to get the tap. You have to seek the tap. And as a result, I hurt some people. And so, number one, have fun. Number two, slow down. Um, why slow down? Number one, there's a lot of wisdom in slowing down. The fast, explosive game, that's amazing for teenagers, for 20-year-olds, and maybe if you're in your early 30s. But what happens with all that fast explosive movements is there's a lot of 
injuries that are waiting around the corner, waiting to capture you, waiting for your thumb to dislocate, your elbow to dislocate. Number one, have fun. Number two, slow down because in slowing down, only then will you start to feel. All skill sets, whether it's golf or volleyball or riding a motorcycle or surfing or whatever it is, all skill sets are felt. And so the way you develop feel is by slowing down. Feel is in Jeet Kune Do, it's the uh, physical attribute called sensitivity. And it's this ability to feel, sense, read, redirect, follow pressure. Starts at the level of the skin, goes into the muscle, goes into the bone. Uh, slow down so that you can learn how to truly feel when to do something. I see, uh, you know, my major criticism of jiu-jitsu over the years is that there's been way too much emphasis on technique. And while I think technique is good, I don't think it's a good starting point. And there's some other things that, that uh, need to be added to technique, like the ability to follow. So when you know a technique, you know how and what. And with a good instructor, you may even know why. But the key question when it comes to skill development is, when do I do this technique? Mm. What is it I'm trying to sense or feel? Are they pushing into me? Are they pulling me? Are they twisting me? Do they have my arm? Do they have my neck? When is the most important question. Not what, not how. When is more important. So number one, have fun. Number two, slow down because I would learn the wisdom of when, because that's so, so important. Um, and then finally, uh, prepare for getting older. Mm. Yeah, because... Man. Mm. <laughs> I could talk for that for an hour. Yeah, prepare for getting older because every day you're getting older. I, I, I've come to that realization slowly. And uh, although I'm 25 in my heart, um, yeah, things, things are definitely shifting. That, that was a great answer. I love, you know, advising people to slow down. It is definitely not um, emphasized. Mm -hmm. it, it seems, yeah, you know, slow is smooth and smooth is fast, okay, but... I, I did definitely don't feel enough people do that, you know, any kind of sensitivity training. In fact, in jujitsu, it, it's almost like, oh, let's just go into, you know, athleticism. Yes. Rather than sensitivity. Let's go in the opposite direction so you can kind of make it happen when you need to. Yes. Exactly. Uh, I, or, or, I or want to. Yes. You know, not necessarily the, the ideal time. Because uh, from the top down, Effectiveness, in other words, the tap, is emphasized. And uh, they think this idea of, well, going slow is to give somebody the advantage. Well, it takes a certain amount of training to get to the level to where you can actually slow down because you have to know what to do 
from side mount, from scarf hold, from the turtle, from somebody having your back, from being on top, from having somebody in the arm lock and they're hugging their arms. There needs to be this large pool of information in order to be able to flow and follow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me uh, go off on a tangent a little bit and come back. Sure. One of the things that uh, uh, COVID did for me was it actually brought out something I've been working on for a long time. Uh, when COVID came along, it ripped the carpet out from underneath me and I was no longer able to travel and do seminars. So I'm like, what am I going to do now? So I made the choice to emphasize going to people's homes and teaching people lessons. But I decided to split my uh, private lessons into two groups. One, technique-based lessons. Two, skill-based lessons. And I did that through this uh, method I call, and I say it like this to make it memorable, I call it FBI-AO. FBIAO stands for fundamentals, basics, intermediate, advanced, and out of this world. Mm. So fundamentals, they have nothing to do with techniques. Zero. Rather, they have everything to do with laying a foundation for your basics. For example, in Harris Jiu-Jitsu, fundamental number one, definitions. What do you mean by that? We have a lot in this jujitsu thing that we have been taught over the years by our instructors that is just assumed we know what they mean. We, we know what they mean when they say things like technique. What's the technique? I've asked that to many people and they go, uh, it's a technique. Yes, I know, but what is it? Uh, best I've heard is it's something you use to solve a problem. I said, good. Good. That is mm-hmm. the essence of a technique. But let's go deeper than that. Do you know what a technique is? No. Here's what a technique is. Here's my definition. It's a series. It's five, five, five parts. A series of movements that we put together into a specific order designed to solve a very specific problem under a given set of circumstances and at a specific point in time. So it's a series of movements we put together in a specific order that solve a specific problem uh, under a given set of circumstances and at a specific point in time. So when you understand this equation, you understand, especially as an instructor, you understand the, uh, the students who say, I see what you're doing with that technique, professor, but couldn't a guy just pull his arm back or couldn't a guy just dip his head down or lift up and, and prevent it? All they have done is change the equation. Mm. So when you understand the equation, series of movements that we put together in a specific order designed to solve a specific problem under a specific set of circumstances and at a specific point in time, uh, it helps to understand all the stuff we're going to cover in the advanced level. So number one, definitions. And there's a whole series of words from techniques, combinations, drill, what's a skill, uh, focus, energy, sensitivity. How do you define these things? These mm-hmm. lay the foundation for everything else. Fundamental, Harris Jiu-Jitsu fundamental number four, equations. There are certain equations in Jiu-Jitsu that, man, I wish I was taught this back in the day. 
One of the first equations that I like to present to students is this equation that goes like this. Poor to mediocre mechanics plus athleticism equals effectiveness. When you understand that equation, you understand why the new white belt, who is five foot six, 215 pounds, wrestled in since he was five, six years old, recently got into powerlifting two years ago. There's a reason why you struggle with him as a brand new purple belt. You now understand it's not all about technique. Technique is an important part of the equation, but there are some other aspects, there are some other parts of the equation that can sometimes, at least temporarily, neutralize uh, technique. And so, you know, fundamental number one is the definitions. Fundamental number four is uh, these equations. Fundamental number nine, defensive positioning. How you position yourself in an inferior position determines how much force, how much strength you're going to have to use in order to escape. For example, if uh, you and I are sparring and you pass my guard and I end up flat on my back, even if I have my arms in posture, my ability to escape is going to be much harder because I'm flat on my back. Now, if I turn partially onto my side, it's going to be a little bit better, but not much better. If I turn all the way onto my side and I take the weight of your upper torso and I put it on my mid or rear deltoid and I block your arm from cross-facing me, you can't get all of your weight on top of me. And even though you're side-mounted, you feel like you only have 40 or 50% control. So how you position yourself before you go to execute a technique is so important. So anyways, within the category of fundamentals, there are 24 subcategories and then over 100 sub-subcategories. I know that's not a word, but I'll just say it. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. And so those are the fundamentals. Next comes the basics. The basics represent all the how-tos how to do a jab, how to do a double leg takedown, how to do uchimata, how to pass the guard, how to do jujikatami, a straight arm lock, how to do kotagaishi. This is your how-to, and within that category, there are 80 uh, subcategories and over 200 sub-subcategories. So that's the fundamentals and the basics. The intermediate, this almost has nothing to do with techniques. It has everything to do with how do you turn this knowledge into a skill set quickly. So there's two focuses at the intermediate level. Number one, practice. Number two, training. I need to go back to fundamentals because I need to define them. What is practice? Practice is this concerted effort that focuses on first, mental memory, and then second, physical memory. So I practice this X amount of repetitions so that I memorize it in my head and then I memorize it in my muscle. This is what starts the journey. This is what will help me, not fully prepare me, but help me start the journey towards realism, doing it against somebody my size or somebody who's bigger and stronger. And then training, training is also a consistent uh, method of focused 
effort that focuses on the development of physical, mental, and emotional attributes. Physical attributes like the control and management of distance and space, sensitivity, the ability to feel and read pressure, uh, footwork. These are physical qualities that supercharge your techniques. And then you have the mental attributes like focus, concentration. What is focus? Focus is exclusion. I'm going to focus on, like my students who focused on that small little sliver of time in no man's land for 10 months. Focus. Uh, then you have the emotional attributes that need to be developed, like pain tolerance, the will to survive. So within the category of intermediate, it's all about how do you practice to turn this into a skill set as quick as possible? And how do you uh, train to develop these physical, mental, and emotional uh, qualities that uh, will help you to develop a skill set? Let me share with you a story, and then we'll move on. When I started this with COVID, I had a blue belt, new blue belt, start to train with me. I asked him, what would you want to focus on? He said, let's focus on guard passing. I said, okay. So he trained with me twice a week. He trained with a training partner twice a week. I gave him a list of things to focus on in his practice with his training partner. Fast forward three weeks, he's now passing the guards of the blue and purple belts at the academy where he trains. This is a competition-oriented school. Fast forward another three weeks, he is now passing the guards of brown belts at the academies where he's training. Mm -hmm. Fast forward another four weeks, he's now passing everybody's guard, including the black belts, which have multiple stripes on their belts. So in the space of two and a half months work, he went from brand new blue belt to black belt in guard passing in that amount of time. Now, we had to change our focus to side mount control because he discovered he could get past people's guard, but he couldn't hold them down. And so that became a secondary area that was related to the first area. So I said all of that to say this, the focus over the last two years for me has really been on this FBI AO system. First, I presented it to uh, clients uh, in their homes. Second, I've been presenting it to my students here at, uh, at the academy here. And then beginning in January of next year, I will have my first series of instructionals that will explain all of this specific to arm locks, takedowns, triangle chokes, side mount escapes, how to develop skill sets in shorter period of time. This is a path I've been passionate about for some time and COVID kind of kicked me in the butt and made me get out there and present it, polish some things. And now that it has been validated through several uh, clients, uh, I'm loving it. It's, it sounds awesome. And, and it's great that, I mean, COVID definitely upended a lot of people's lives. It did. The academies uh, in the U.S., internationally, um, it shifted a lot of things. And to be able to kind of, that's real jujitsu when you can take that and, um, you know, use it as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. The unforeseen circumstance, use what you got. And yes. It sounds like you used it really well. Thank you. Um, let's see. Now, 
Another question. You are distinguished in your teaching methodology mm-hmm. by having specific requirements for each belt level, including black belt. So could you just kind of briefly go over what you are looking for at each belt level, in, including the, in like the black belt levels? Yeah, so for the white belt, somebody who trains with me as a white belt, uh, whether they train with me physically here in San Diego or the people who train with me online, number one, be humble. Hmm. That's important. Be humble and lay a foundation. Uh, it's, I find that a lot of people nowadays, especially thanks to technology like the internet and cell phones and DVDs from the past, uh, people have access to so much more information and they have this curiosity. They want to know, they want to know, they want to know. And while that's good, it can actually work against you. And so as a white belt, I want my white belts to try and remain humble and lay a foundation for the future because by the time I wrap a black belt around your waist or even further down the road, I wrap a coral or a red belt around your waist, uh, I want you to have this solid foundation because the foundation is going to stay with you. Techniques are going to come and go. Mm. And so as a white belt, yeah, uh, be humble and lay that foundation. Uh, As a blue belt, I want the person to review and polish their basics because the journey from blue to purple belt, (coughs) from my perspective, is more about taking all of your basics and being able to put them together into combinations that work for you. Also, it's not enough just to kind of know a technique, there has to be some depth of your knowledge and understanding. For example, I was talking with a gentleman the other day and we were talking about this subject of the under the leg guard pass. Does the under the leg guard pass work in today's world of, uh, of advanced guard work? And I said, oh yeah, it, it does. And I've had so many people ask me this question. I've even had black belts from all over uh, come to, not to this facility, but to another facility that I used to uh, teach at before this and say, I'm curious about your under the leg guard pass. Can I see? And they want to spar. And every time I pass their guard under the leg and they were impressed. And I said, no need to be impressed. I wanted to show you that this simple basic technique has a lot of depth to it. Let me explain it the way I now try and explain my jujitsu. I have three methods, or I should say three levels, that I present. Level one, the essence, the gist of something. So when I'm going to teach somebody the basic under-the-leg guard pass at this first level, it's around five or six big ideas, five or six big rocks. This is how you pass the guard. Now they have a good idea of how to do it. Level two is called, that's good enough for now. At this level, there's around 14 or 15 moving parts to the basic under the leg guard pass. At that point in time, many students go, wow, I didn't know there was so much. It's kind of like, just wait, wait until we get to the third level. 
So first level, we got about uh, five or six. Second level, we got uh, 14 or 15. Third level, I call, oh, wow, I didn't know all of that. At the third level, the basic under the leg guard pass has 40, four, zero moving parts. Mm. Mm. It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, now, when I, here's the interesting part about this journey. When I share the essence with people, most of the time they're like, ah, ah, ah. that's their response. When I show them level two, they're like, oh, wow, it's a lot of details. And when I tell them about the level three, they're like, what, what? Tell me, tell me. And I tell them, and then they do this. Oh, it's too, it, oh, it's They're on overload. <laughs> and then they say, well, how am I going to do that in a sparring match? How am I going to do that in a competition? How am I going to do that in a real fight? Mm -hmm. I said, this is where intermediate level training comes in. This is where I teach you how to practice it, and I teach you how to train it so that you develop it. You, mm -hmm. it it's just like, you know, how do I drink Lake Superior? Simple, you drown. <laughs> There's no right. way you can drink Lake Superior. But if Lake Superior wasn't constantly being refilled, I suppose over the course of a thousand lifetimes, you could drink enough to actually drink the lake dry. That's kind of how you have to look at this third level of uh, technical overload where there's so many different things that you have to pay attention to. Now, uh, a question that often gets asked is, do I need all 40 of those movements to pass somebody's guard? The answer is no. Remember right. the equation? Poor to, me, poor to mediocre mechanics plus athleticism equals effectiveness. Mm -hmm. The I call it the bear guard pass where you, I'll go to the side here, where you reach underneath the leg and you go, ah, oh, you throw the leg to the side. <laughs> yeah. That's a guard pass. That's an under the leg guard pass. That's effective. That can work. Mm -hmm. Will it work all the time? Will it work most of the time? No. So uh, what's the purpose then for this extreme level of details? It's for the people like myself who kind of have the nerdy, geeky, OCD type personality that are truly in pursuit of leverage. Mm. I'm of the opinion a lot of people give lip service to leverage and they don't pursue it. They mask mm -hmm. it with their athleticism. I say, if there's a technique that you know, let me see you perform 50 burpees with a push-up during each burpee, and then let me see you execute the technique. Mm -hmm. That's a true definition mm -hmm. of skill. That's a true I'm not definition, demonstration of skill. And so uh, by taking the time to actually pursue leverage and to do it with a handful of techniques. For example, let me back up to my JKD. My JKD covers long rifle, shotgun, handgun, sword, stick, knife, rope, cloth, chain, rock, the kicking, the long punching, the short punching, the trapping, the clinch, the ground, and the environment. Minus the weaponry, my of all the stuff I've been taught, when I come to when it comes to uh, kicking, two kicks. 
when it comes to punching, two punches. When it comes to uh, the clinch, I'm sorry, the trapping work, two techniques. When it comes to the clinch work, two techniques. When it comes to the ground, two techniques. This is how I've made an effort to simplify so that efficiency is the goal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You feel me? Oh, oh, definitely. I, when, it, when you went through that list of all the different, you know, from extended down to very, very close range, I thought, well, one thing I thought was, and all that in one women's self-defense class done over two hours. <laughs> uh, but, 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 you know, I mean, also as you're going into further levels of detail, I mean, so many, in my own, like, instruction journey, you get from students that, oh, yeah, you forgot about this detail or that detail. It's like, D- you are not ready for that. Yes. Or maybe that's applicable. But, you know, by the time you reach, it seems, level three, you have so many things already chunked into your muscle memory that you can, you have like that spare RAM to... Mm-hmm. Yes. To, oh, I can focus on that because everything else is automatic and, and a piece of cake. Yes. So white belt is this belt of being humble, lay a foundation. Blue belt, now polish your basics and then start to put them together and develop some flow. Don't try and force things. Let people into the game. Learn the ability to follow because you know this because you've been through this. The purple belt, I look at the purple belt as the belt of momentum and combination. Momentum, when somebody pushes, you pull. Oops, I almost pulled uh, this up. When somebody, uh, when somebody pushes, you pull. When somebody pulls, you push. It's that ability to read and feel pressure. That's momentum. And then combinations. Uh, when you do an escape, good. But as you are finishing escape, your escape, start looking for what position are you going to go to next? What uh, control position? What submission? What technique are you going to go to after that? And so Blue Belt begins that journey of starting to put things together into discovering which path is yours. Is it the bottom game and the guard? Is it the top game with guard passing and smashing? Where are you at? Purple belt. Purple belt is trying to, that journey from purple to brown belt is about trying to smooth things out and develop a game like glass that is smooth, but also going to the other end of the spectrum and developing a game that's hard. Mm. Why? Because... Sometimes you need that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when you're teaching, you have those bud heads that come in that need to be taught a lesson. Um, and so it's important to, uh, I think, at the, from the purple belt to the brown belt, to have this smooth and soft game that uh, you can use on the majority of people and spar with people and teach simultaneously. Teach, mm-hmm. not through your words, but teach through your actions. That's what the smooth and the fluid and the soft are for. Having that hard game, that's more for tournament-type uh, sparring or as an instructor and you have somebody comes in who challenges your authority or tries to hurt you. Uh, and then additionally at Purple Belt, I think Purple Belt should start to learn how to teach. 
learn how to communicate. Mm. Because mm -hmm. uh, at Purple Belt, you know, instructors start asking you, uh, hey, Roy, could you teach class tonight? That's a very common thing at the Purple Belt level because now you are a step above the Blue Belt level and you're supposed to know a whole bunch of stuff. And so I think it's important for that journey from purple to brown that people start learning how to effectively communicate and be able to teach to a vast array of clientele. Brown belt, the journey from brown belt to black belt. This is a journey where I think it's important that uh, those extremes, the softness and the hardness be extended. You go even harder and you go mm. even softer. Mm. For example, uh, I've shared this with some people in the past and they're like, can you go hard with me, but don't hurt me? Uh, I was like, well, I can't guarantee that I won't hurt you softly. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you will feel a little bit of pain, but I, I promise not to dislocate mm. or break anything. And so with that hardness, it's not just about uh, sparring hard. It's about being highly focused, highly precise. And can you spar as a black belt? Can you spar and say, okay, tonight I'm going to tap each student that I spar with them twice every minute. So two times a minute, once every 30 seconds, once every 15 seconds, once every 10 seconds, once every five seconds. That takes a bit of work, especially when you're trying hard to not really hurt the person. Yeah, mm -hmm. that wrist lock, that arm bar, that choke, it's going to be a bit painful, but then the pain will leave after <clears throat> after three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten seconds, it will leave. That's that's a good pain. Um, and so, as a brown belt, many people don't understand this. People walking into your academy as a brown belt, they see you as an almost black belt. Mm -hmm. Therefore, there is this expectation that you have the ability to kick butt and take names. You have the ability to escape at will. You have the ability to control and submit at will. And more importantly, you have the ability to present to anybody that is in front of you, whether they are normal or they are physically challenged or they're mentally challenged or they're visually challenged or <clears throat> they have something that makes... Uh, Jiu-Jitsu difficult for them, you should have that ability to present, and that journey should have started at Purple Belt. And so as a brown belt, it's about the extending that hardness and that softness and polishing them to high levels and then polishing your ability to communicate and transmit that information. Because if you do open a school, later on down the road, people are going to look at you and say, you may be a phenomenal practitioner, but how are you as an instructor? Let me take a look at your students. And when they see your students mimic you in certain ways, they're soft. They love kotagaishi. They do heel hook. They do whatever. When they see that, they go, ah, I can see your influence on the person. That's important to develop that uh, 
on that journey to black belt. And then once you've got a black belt, that journey from black belt to first degree, I think it's important that you take some time and learn how to polish the other side of things. You know, polish the side of what do you do when somebody, you're mounted on top of somebody and they do elbow knee escape. Do you know how to count, neutralize and counter elbow knee escape? Do you know how to neutral and counter, uh, neutralize and counter uh, the basic bridge and roll? Do you know how to escape your arm locks efficiently? Do you know how to escape uh, a heel hook? Do you know how to relieve the pressure on a wrist lock? So mm-hmm. the journey really begins at from black belt to first degree because now you think you know, but you really don't know. <laughs> and now it's time to fill in some of those holes that were missed in your journey from white to black belt. So that's kind of how I look at the journey from uh, white belt to first right black belt. That's fantastic. And I, I love what you said about brown belt. I mean, I, I feel like brown belt is where you kind of merge the two, you know, the hard and the soft. I mean, you, you need whatever... Whatever you don't have, you have to fill that in and then make it so. You got to be able to go hard. You got to be able to to represent uh, and put someone on their back if if need be. Yes. And yeah, so you can play top or bottom, and if, and if you don't have that ability, or if you're a top player and you don't have a playful guard, then you need to get a playful guard. Yes. You have to kind of merge those complements so you have whatever you need in the in the real world. Yes. Because you're, you're, I mean, as you well know, you always run into people that are exceptions. Yes. You know, works on most people except this guy. Yes. Yep. I remember doing a seminar in Canada and uh, we were talking about guard control and I was talking about uh, how to release somebody's grip. Well, one guy there couldn't release his grip. And so I was kind of like, well, it looks like he's doing it right. Well, l- here, let me try. Let me try. And so I pull him into my guard, and it was this guy, and he grabbed a hold of my lapel, and I went to release the grip, and I couldn't get his grip off. And so I thought, okay. So I went into black belt mode, put my shin on his bicep, and pushed away. Didn't release the grip. And mm. then I pushed away and put my foot on his bicep. Still didn't release the grip. So I said, uh, yeah, don't worry about it with this guy. I said, sir, can mm. I ask you, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a lumberjack. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, with lumberjacks and that kind of grip, yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, work around the, the arm. Yes, he's the exception to the rule. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, there are those people, and to have those kind of. Uh, so you have a game plan for those exceptions. That's really a deep level of, of knowledge. That I mean, that's like the craftsmanship mm-hmm. in 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 your own personal jujitsu game. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you don't really need that for day to day effectiveness against an average person. But no. but but for your own, um, you know, for polishing your own personal game, you 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 feel like no, I need to figure that out. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that at least that's that's the way I, I I tend to look at. It. I really look at like the art of jujitsu as like a kind of a um, a craft that you you chip away at. Yes, there's so much there. 
Yes. It's so deep and you can go, I mean, down so many different rabbit holes and then yes. to have a holistic game that's well-rounded too is, is also not only, I mean, balancing that depth with the breadth of everything you need. It's, mm-hmm. man, it's, it's quite the journey. People, pe- people that are into it for a couple years, I mean, they kind of, they, they get a little bit of that. Yes. But they but, have no um, idea about the other levels. <laughs> Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, okay, so can we uh, talk, uh, just a couple more questions, uh, talk yes. briefly about pressure and the pressure, I noticed early on, you know, the pressure is very difficult to see on video. Mm-hmm. People can't really tell how much pressure is being exerted. Like, why is that guy screaming? I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and could you talk about your approach to pressure, and and then also, you said something years ago that that I always remembered. Uh, I think it was after my black belt, my initial black belt exam, mm-hmm. and I I don't know. I, I made some kind of involuntary moan, and and you said, "Oh, they all moan." <laughs> all your black belts. Yes. You you make sure you make sure that like you take them to the point where uh, no, you're going to make some noise. Um, talk about pressure, and then and then you know, kind of testing people for their heart because a lot of, there's been a lot of interest, especially in my fourth degree mm-hmm. exam. Um, like no one will really ever know what that felt like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Except, I mean, you know, yes, and I know, yes, <laughs> but like they can't really see what, what that was. Uh, mm-hmm. So any insight on that would be appreciated. Yes. Uh, pressure, uh, for starters, I'm going to say this and then move on, because um, I had a guy come down from L.A. Uh, recently. He wanted to take a private lesson with me, and at the end of the lesson, I could tell he was being very respectful, but he didn't really think too much about what I presented to him. And so I said, well, we have a little bit of time left. Do you have any other questions or anything you want to do? <laughs> do you hear how leading the question was? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah, can we spar? I was like, yeah, I figured you wanted to spar. I said, so I'm going to give you an experience that I'm sure you will never forget. Oh, yeah, I know. You're the boa. You're the pressure and everything. I said, yeah, but pressure for me is so 20th century. It's old school. I don't do it that much anymore. I do it from time to time. I do it on all of my tests. But as far as me sparring, eh, I found something much more efficient than pressure. And he says, what is that? I said, you're about to experience it. And so uh, we slapped hands, bumped knuckles, and then I laid down on my side and pretended like I was going to do the guard, and he passed my guard right away, and I put him on his back. Mm-hmm. Notice I didn't say sweep him. I let him pass my guard, and then I put him on his back. And then as I put him on his back, I put my hands on the mat so that there was about uh, 14, 16, 18 inches between his chest and my chest, and I held him down from the side mount. Mm. Then, mm. when he couldn't replace the guard, he was unsure about going to his knees because he thought I was going to take his back. And so he went and put his arms up in posture like this. And then I put him in the Americana. And he tapped. And he said, hmm, that's interesting. I said, yeah, no pressure. Let's do it again. <laughs> Lay down on my side. He passed my guard. I put him on his back. Did the same hold down, 
14 inches away from his chest and he couldn't help himself. He goes, ah, well, I want to see if I can go to my knees. He couldn't go to his knees. He couldn't replace the guard. He tried to do the underhook. I killed the underhook. And then he tried to put his form across my neck. And then I did Americana again. He's like, wow. So pressure is phenomenal, but pressure can also become a weakness. The weakness mm. of pressure is you make yourself vulnerable to bridging wrong. Yeah. So uh, here's the thing about pressure. Pressure is something that can be done uh, face down and face up. In other words, it can be done, when most people think about pressure, they think about uh, pressure with guard passing or side mount or scarf control. Mm -hmm. That's the easy form of doing pressure. The harder form of doing pressure is from the bottom. And so first thing about pressure is it has to be multi-angled. It's not just one angle. Mm -hmm. It's actually several angles being applied at the same time. Mm. I had students who watched your test and they were like, why was Mr. Dean moaning? It's like, because he was uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, but you weren't doing anything. I said, yeah, you're right. I wasn't doing anything. Yeah, for several minutes. <laughs> <laughs> like, but what were you doing? It's like, it's just simple pressure. Yeah, but it didn't look like you were doing pressure. Because, uh, so there is, uh, the two pressures that I used with you primarily was, number one, my knees, there was a horizontal pressure that was being driven into the sides of your body by my knees. This is what got rid of the space and made it very difficult for you to replace the guard. So this is the first pressure. And I must say, the most important pressure. Mm. The second pressure, this is the fun pressure. This is the one that everybody sees. The, the moaning and all that. This was done by pressing down with the base, uh, with the bottom of my rib cage, my xiphoid process, and my floating ribs was pressing down. Many people who press down, let me turn sideways so you can see this, they press down, but then they move their head up and away and they release the pressure. Mm. So when you apply downward pressure, it has to be chin down and xiphoid process down at the same time. Mm. And so when it comes to the application of pressure, whether it's pressure from the top or pressure from the bottom, this pressure has to be multi-angled and it's always two, it's usually three or four. Mm, awesome. I do remember, I, I remember um, taking off my gi top and there was this, I was like, oh, what, what is that mark on your shoulder? And it was a bruise and it was from your chin. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? Uh, when I ended up giving a little pressure to, uh, in, in a black belt um, exam sometime later, I, I, I remember. I remember the chin down. Mm -hmm. I remembered that. I gave him just a little taste, mm -hmm. but of, of of what that was. But it, yeah, that it's that's a very interesting and subtle point to, you know, expanding the chest, pulling back, and relieving that one direction of pressure mm -hmm. versus pushing in and then bearing down mm -hmm. with that. That's yeah. That's that's really good. I remember it for sure. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so let's talk about what you're up to currently and, and any projects that you're, you're working on and, and what, uh, what are you looking forward to in this next year in 2023? 
Well, I got a couple things going on. I have a uh, uh, project with uh, BJJ, the guys at BJJ Fanatics. I filmed nice. that back in October, and uh, it was supposed to be done in early November, but it's still not done. So I imagine it's going to be released sometime, hopefully within the next couple of weeks. Excellent. And hopefully in January, but yeah, I'm excited about that because the name of the project is called Rapid Skill Development. And it's the idea of, let me show you how to develop a skill, a measurable progression in your skill, huge progression, in two to three weeks. I'm not saying mastery or personalization in that period of time, but... Uh, I'm trying to help people replicate. Remember that story I talked about, the blue belt who was yeah. passing up with? I'm helping people to replicate that same process. Mm. And mm -hmm. so I'm very excited about that um, because it's different from everybody else. Everybody else is just so focused on technique, and I, and I get it. That's the culture. That's what we've done for so long. But because I'm a JKD guy and a Filipino martial arts guy, we're more focused on skill set development. Let me show you how to develop skill sets. And what's nice about this particular instructional that I'm doing with the guys at BJJ Fanatics is the knowledge there can be applied to any instructional series that a person has in their library. So I designed that particular course to work with any other course. Obviously, there's going to be need to be certain types of instruction to help develop those skill sets, but the ideas are there. Conceptually, the ideas are there. So that's one project <clears throat> that I have worked on, very excited about, and hopefully it'll come out soon. <clears throat> the second one is I have my own project uh, coming out. Um, I have, I'm going down a different journey. I have a new... Mm, I won't say it's a brand, but I'll say it's a brand. That's kind of a strong word that I call DIY Jiu-Jitsu Guy. Mm. And so it's DIYJiu-JitsuGuy.com. And so the focus of this particular uh, website is going to be on courses that are going to help people get skill sets in the areas that they want, whether it's punching or whether it's takedowns or whether it's whatever the topic is and I'm going to show people how to do it on their own because as I've traveled around the world I've seen people struggle because they don't have access to an instructor all they really have are some DVDs and so I'm going to show people the full gamut of training that goes far beyond just techniques and their details and so mm. I'm very excited the first course that's coming out is going to be called side mount escape mastery where I'm going to show you how to escape uh, the side mount in a variety of different ways. I'm going to show you how to train it, as well as how to measure your progress. Fantastic. Fantastic. I love the idea of this kind of modular instructional, which attaches and can supercharge uh, anything that you already have. Um, it is interesting to note the kind of, uh, D Dave Camarillo says, uh, BJJ is the most technical martial art in the world. And it's, it's just, it's so much about technique. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in, over the last couple of years, I, I've definitely been kind of, it's less about technique. It's more about postures as, as you're emphasizing and, and, uh, 
I don't know, just you could, I can see it in a more principle oriented way. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it takes a while. It takes a while to, to kind of be able to view it through that lens. Um, yes. Yes. Let me me make a a comment on that. I'm, I'm so happy to see more and more instructors actually start to, I'm pausing because I was going to say something, but it's like, no, that sounds a little bit arrogant. Let me just go ahead and say it. To follow my lead in talking about principles and concepts. I'm so happy to see more and more instructors actually go down this path because when I started first writing about jujitsu back in 94, late 94, early 1995, and I was answering questions on all these different forms, I would talk about the importance of concepts and principles, and I had people argue with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the here's why I think it's so important to understand uh, both principles and concepts. When you understand these two, you now have a freedom to explore and discover your own path. Mm-hmm. When you're taught a technique, very often you get taught a technique that works for the instructor and may not necessarily work for you. For example, I had a guy come to me, take a private lesson with me in, uh, in Europe, <clears throat> and he wanted to say, he, he asked me, what should I focus on? It's like, well, let's roll for a couple of minutes and let's see. And he was a guy my size, and he was all about the guard. And I said, okay, let's stop right there. First, uh, you're a big guy, and you need to learn how to smash. I can tell your instructor is a small, probably a Brazilian. How did you know? It's like, I can tell. You are, what, six foot four and 260? Yeah, you're a big boy. Trying to do all of these different guards? That's not your game, man. You got the size, use it. And so, uh, yeah, I I think, uh, well, I could talk for hours about this. Yeah, Uh, well, it's, you know, I've, I've seen some concepts offered in the past, mm-hmm. uh, but but uh, beginning students don't have anything to anchor them to. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, it's like, oh, it's circular movement. Okay, well, I haven't really drilled like a series of interconnected circular movements, so I can't really feel the, you know, the dynamism and the and the momentum and the centrifugal force. It's just, that's just one example of, I, I, I see people trying to go down that path, but then there's just something very... Um, you, you kind of have to have this balanced approach where you have to have some, a technique to anchor it to. Yes. But mm-hmm. then you can't get pinned down with that. Yes. So it's, a, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a more intermediate to advanced um, model to view mm-hmm. the art through. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Good. Well, Mr. Harris, I'm, I'm mindful of your time and I appreciate, I know you have a busy schedule and I appreciate you taking the time to, to come on and, and share your wisdom. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and share with your viewers some of the ideas, some of the things that I have uh, gone through, and hopefully they have gained uh, a few kernels of uh, knowledge and wisdom that they can add to their current game and make themselves a better practitioner. Uh, I know you definitely did. Um, They appreciate wisdom, and I appreciate all your guidance over the years. Um, You've been a fantastic teacher, and just thank you for everything you do. Sure. Thank you.